0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at GraceCitySD.com.
1: Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations." For our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, is stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of men of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Will you pray with me? God, we uh, come before you uh, broken Uh, In need of your love, in need of your grace, Lord. Uh, Holy Spirit, help us to open our hearts and to open our hands, Lord, to receive what you offer and what you are telling us and teaching us today. May you help us trust you uh, to let go some of the things that are distracting us through this week, Lord, in the past week, and the things that we're holding on to, that we're afraid of letting go and trusting and offering it to you, God. Be with us today, Lord. May your words be even more um, clear to us to guide us in the next steps that we take. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: All right. Thank you. Grace City, what is going on? Is everyone doing good? You guys were all rambunctious during that family time, but right now you're just looking at me silent. What's up? I'm John. I um, I work with Crew, uh, but I'm actually wrapping up my time with Crew Campus Crusade for Christ this summer. I'll, it'll be the end of a 15-year era, and I'll be uh, working full-time over at New Vision uh, Church over in City Heights. And uh, there's one thing I do want to say: is I love Grace City. I love Randall. I really love Randall a lot, right? Um, just your leadership that I've met from this this church. Is humble, loves Jesus, great communicator, uh, just great person, listener, all these different things. So, you guys are an amazing church uh, with an amazing leadership, pastor, team. So, man, it's, it's uh, good to be here uh, with you guys today. Um, I'm gonna start off by asking a really important question, all right? Do we have any criers in, in the audience? Okay. Oh, okay. We got honest people. Okay, but you, you know who you are, right? It's like you're you're watching movies. Are you are watching TV shows? Or you're reading books, or you're just really having a conversation about anything meaningful, and you start to cry, right? You know who you are, right? I love being around people uh, who are criers. I, I wouldn't consider myself a crier, really, um, but I tell you what, there are a couple of two two different things that I find myself tearing up and getting misty-eyed often. Whenever I watch a movie or something about sports, I don't know why. I know I get some, some weird looks over here. But when I watch a movie about sports, I don't know what it is. But when I'm watching the miracle on ice and, you know, see the, the U.S. team come back and, and beat the Russian team. And it's just this crazy. I'm, I'm sitting there weeping. Um, it's crazy. I know. Like Sandlot, you know, this like story of, you know, I, I, the weeping at these kids, you know. This guy made it, he became a, a, he played for the Dodgers. It was so cool. I'm also a Dodger fan. So there was some weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, well, th- there's a lot of that going on with, with sports, right? Um, But the second thing, and you guys are like, who is this guy? You you don't know whether to take me seriously or not, Um, which I do cry at at sports movies. But the second thing I find myself getting all misty-eyed about are stories about sacrifice, right? So movies, TV shows, book stories, really anything, anything on the news that I read about sacrifice. I don't know what it is, man. It triggers something deep in my soul. Right. So, uh, you know, I have uh, three kids, uh, but my two oldest are four and six, and they are obsessed right now with two things. They are obsessed with Legos and they're obsessed with Star Wars right? I as a kid was never that into Star Wars. So it's really funny that they're like really into it. But we kind of, we spent uh, some spring break and some time uh, going through and watching the old ones, right? So some of y'all were here and and y'all actually went to the theaters to watch these. So you're saying these are the originals, which they are. They're the originals, four, five, and six, right? And I I couldn't help it, but I get to six. I've watched these things so many times, right? I think it was in two, you get this moment where, where, um, uh, Darth Vader tells Luke that he's his father, and I'm like, "Oh my goodness! I know this is the greatest cinematic like reveal in history, probably, right?" Um, but then in in the third one or in the sixth one, you get that moment where it's this tense moment. My boys are super afraid. They're like, they don't want to watch it anymore because they see Luke fighting Darth Vader, and and they don't know what's gonna happen, and. Uh, you know, the emperor is sitting there and he's shocking Luke and it's this like really scary thing. And my boys are just scared. And then all of a sudden, what does Darth Vader do? He sacrifices himself for Luke. Right. It's something that we know and we've seen uh, it was, with Star Wars and I've seen it a million times, but I'm sitting there and I am just crying. My boys are like, what are you doing? They just come from being sad, but then they're really excited. They're like, Luke 1, this is amazing. And they love the Ewoks. But something about Darth Vader sacrificing himself for his son absolutely like rips me to shreds emotionally, you know. I just love that scene where, where he takes off the helmet and he's talking about this idea of, uh, you know, Father, I knew you had good in you. And he's like, you saved me, Luke. Like, I'm even getting a little bit misty-eyed right now. It's it's so silly, but it's it's so meaningful. Something about sacrifice and stories of sacrifice, modern-day examples. I I think that whenever, uh, you know, current events, you know, when uh, maybe five weeks ago, six weeks ago, whenever it happened, but when Russia invaded Ukraine, I, I was glued to Twitter. I was glued to Twitter. I was just wanted to watch, see stories and the videos and what was happening and what was going on. And I just was moved. I, was, I feel like I was misty-eyed all week long because of these countless stories of these images of dads saying goodbye to their families as they're putting them on trains to leave the country, but the dad's staying to sacrifice themselves to fight for their families. Something about sacrifice grips our souls. And we are uh, in a season, the season of Lent, and we're entering into a season, the season of Easter, Good Friday, Easter, where this is a season where we get to consider sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. Our, our uh, story, our scripture today is in uh, Isaiah 52-53, and you guys have been in a... Uh, A series for the past few weeks about in the book of Isaiah, basically preparing our hearts for the Easter season. And part of the thing is is that we've been going through the book of Isaiah, which was written in, you know, late 1700s BC, early 600s BC, around that time, was written way back in the day. But there we see these images. Of sacrifice. We see these images of this projecting toward the Messiah. This figure that Isaiah was forecasting to, was preparing the way for, was talking about that was going to come in the future and was going to restore. He was going to redeem. He was going to heal. He was going to save. And so what's amazing is when we read the Old Testament, it, it, uh, it's, it's often like my boys also like the highlight magazines. You guys know the highlight magazines? So we get, we get one of those in the mail. And there's two things we love about the highlight magazines that we like to do together. The first one is there's that thing that says, find all the silly images. So you kind of go through and you find all the silly images. It's really fun. But the second one is the hidden pictures. Is that you're sitting there, and I love the hidden pictures, but you have the little the thing down at the bottom, and you're trying to find those images in the picture. And it's really hard to find. It's really confusing at first, but once you see it, you can never unsee it. When you go back, you always know where the carrot was. It was hidden between the tree, you know what I'm saying? But it's like that with the Old Testament. Sometimes, when, you know, when we read the Old Testament, we kind of think about it and we look at it and we're, we're searching the Old Testament, we're thinking, is this a different kind of God from the New Testament? He seems angry and wrathful. In the New Testament he seems loving and kind. What, what's the difference? But when we encounter Jesus and we meet Jesus and we start to, we have the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us and working through us. When we read the Old Testament, it's kind of like finding that image that once we see Jesus and we see the gospel in the Old Testament, we can never unsee it. And you realize that from Genesis 1 all the way through to the end of the Bible is this story of sacrifice, this story of redemption, this story of savior, saving. it's really amazing. And so we're going to be talking about uh, in the book of Isaiah. And uh, you guys have probably already been introduced to to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet uh, in like the late 1700s, early 600s sorry late 700s early 600s BC so it's kind of a really tenuous time in the the, the time of Israel at that uh, in that era because uh, in 722 the assyrian empire the global superpower of the time came down and they basically destroyed israel which is the kingdom of the north 10 of the 12 tribes of israel made up that 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 northern kingdom the assyrians came in and they completely annihilated and wiped out those people groups, gone. And so the nation of Judah, which was the Southern kingdom, which is where Jerusalem is, had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes of of Israel that were down in Judah. And it was a really precarious, nervous time for them because Assyria and what was going on in Babylon, two of the world's global superpowers were on the doorsteps of Jerusalem saying, we're going to take you next. And so Isaiah is sitting here and and there's this time of being nervous because gone are the days of David. Gone are the days of Solomon where they could put their hopes and dreams in this king who was going to save them and defend them from their, their enemies. Gone are those days because there's someone, something more powerful, the Assyrian armies, the Babylonian armies that are, that are stronger than the armies of Judah. And so Isaiah is in this precarious spot because he's, he's hearing from the Lord and he's, he's trying to tell the, the nation of Judah, hey, listen, don't be like the people up in Israel. I've been trying to tell you to follow my word and to obey me and to, to, to trust in God because God is stronger than the armies of Assyria and Babylon. He will deliver you. He will save you. And King Hezekiah, for a while, believed in that. So King Hezekiah was one of the kings during Isaiah's time. But even then, there were some kings that came after him that were evil and terrible. And so Isaiah was saying, look, if you don't turn around, you're toast, and so Isaiah was forecasting, he, he, he forecasted a couple things. He prophesied, he, he was a prophet of God. God told him, he gave him words to speak. And he spoke these words that, of, of doom. Basically, if you don't turn it around, which you aren't, you will be destroyed just like the Northern Kingdom. But there's something different about how Isaiah talked about them being taken to captivity. He also forecasted and he also prophesied about deliverance about saving. He said that even though we may there might be trials and tribulations now, I promise you that there is going to be one who is going to come and restore the kingdom of Israel. That he's gonna restore the kingdom of God. That all this glory and majesty and hope and all these different things, don't worry, it's coming. And so the people could find solace, they could find hope in who this person was. And so that's where we find ourselves in Isaiah 52. This is one of those famous uh, prayers of the suffering servant which you guys have been going through for the past few weeks. And this is kind of the last one and possibly the most famous and well-known. And one last thing before we even get into the text, um, I, I'm a, I love history. I'm kind of, I, I, I'm a little bit of a nerd uh, with regard to that. But in 1946, this is, this is very important for even as we study this text to, today, is that 1946, arguably one of the greatest archaeological discoveries happened in Israel. For sure, one of the greatest in biblical archaeology. Is that 1946, there's this shepherd boy that was in this area called Qumran, right outside the Dead Sea in Israel. And Qumran is just a little bit south of Jericho. And as the shepherd boy is walking around the desert, uh, he's just tossing rocks into these little caves. And he tossed a rock into a cave and he heard a shatter. He's like, what the, what was that? So he he goes and he investigates. And in this cave, he finds this whole cache, this whole like uh, storehouse of jars full of scrolls. And so as as these archaeologists start to to figure out what these scrolls were, they found all kinds of scrolls of of Old Testament books. They found all kinds of these holy uh, writings from way back in ancient times, in B.C. times. And one of the most significant things that they found was they found a whole Isaiah scroll. All 66 books of Isaiah, they found it right there. And they dated it to between 1 and 200 B.C., Up until that time, theologians, we we didn't have an Isaiah, like the oldest Isaiah manuscript that we had was from like 900 AD. And so when we think about what we're reading today, Isaiah 52, what they found is when they compared those two texts, the one that that we had that was in 900 AD and the ones that they had just found that were from one to 200 BC pre-Jesus, the ones that Jesus would have read, the ones that in Acts 8, the uh, Ethiopian eunuch was reading as Philip came over there. And the Ethiopian eunuch was like reading literally the words that we're gonna read today, was like, what does this mean? Who is this person? And Philip was like, that is Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. What's amazing is when they compared the two manuscripts, they were identical, except for a couple like minute, like punctuation errors, which changed nothing of the meaning. And so what they found is, this is significant. The entire scroll that we know of, that we have right here is the same Isaiah scroll, the same words that Jesus read, that the New Testament authors quoted when they were writing the New Testament. Absolutely powerful. Because, sorry, sorry. This is another aside. Because why it's so significant is because uh, people before them were saying, you know what, maybe his followers changed stuff to make it look like Jesus back in in Isaiah. But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it was a proof that what we're reading today is real and true. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read this passage, this famous passage, And I'm just gonna make some comments and we're gonna consider uh, what Isaiah was trying to prophesy toward. And we're gonna, it's a powerful message. It's a message of sacrifice, it's a message of violence, but it's also a message of transcendent love, transcendent mercy, transcendent grace. And so I want us, to, as we read this and as we reflect on this, and even as we enter into this season of Good Friday and Easter, I, I, would, I would really love for you guys to, to think and meditate and read this again and consider that the words here were written 700 years before Jesus came. And I want us to sit here and just be mesmerized by how eerily the same that these words, how they're projecting for toward this savior, how eerily similar they are to the Jesus that we know from the New Testament so let's go ahead and just read uh, start reading together isaiah fifty two verse thirteen i 'm going to be uh, reading out of the NLT this morning so it says uh, in the first three verses of our passage, so verse 13 through 15 of chapter 52. It says, see, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. And they will understand what they had not heard about. This little uh, section right here, you could think of it as sort of a summary section to what we're going to be reading in the rest of chapter 53. And so how Isaiah, or these are the words of God, how God is basically prefacing this section is he's introducing us to this servant. And in verse 13, we find that this servant will be exalted. We see that this servant is going to be highly esteemed. And so this is not, mysterious or this is not new for that time. If they were going to be thinking about projecting toward this savior, they would be thinking about this mighty king who is going to be exalted among all the nations that all the world would look at the king of Israel or the king of the Jews as being supreme, that he would be exalted among the nations. So when God is saying this, the original, author, the original readers are thinking, I got this. The servant is gonna come and be highly esteemed and highly exalted among the world. But then in verse 14, we see here that it says, but many were amazed when they saw him, not because of why we think they would be amazed, but because his face was so disfigured He seemed hardly human, and from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And so immediately we get introduced to this highly exalted king figure, servant, who all of a sudden is going to be known and recognized, not because of his kingliness, but because he's going to come and he's going to be unrecognizable because of how disfigured his face is. And then in verse 15, we see a little bit more. He says, and he will startle. uh, The ESV, which was read a little bit earlier, says, and he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Now, I think the ESV actually does a better job. It, 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 that word of startle or sprinkle can go both ways, but I feel like the connotation of what they're talking about is sprinkle is more accurate to, to the text or what Isaiah is trying to say here. Because this idea of sprinkle is this word that is also used elsewhere as cleanse or Purify. It it, it has these echoes of the sacrificial system where where the priests would come and they would sprinkle blood on the the altar to to atone or to heal the sins of all the people of Israel. And so what we see here, even in this introduction, is that we are introduced to this servant who will be exalted, but not for the reasons why people would think he would be exalted. He's gonna be exalted because he is so disfigured because he's been beaten up so badly, but we see that because of his being beat up badly, that he will actually cleanse all the nations, that he will purify all peoples of the earth. You literally cannot make this up. So we're going to uh, chapter 53, verse one. He says, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? Now, the arm of the Lord or or powerful arm uh, in Isaiah, as Isaiah has been talking or God talks about it, it's almost this image that God is going to do the work himself. He's about to go to work. It's this image of like rolling up my sleeves. It is time to go to work. And so what God is saying here is that who who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? is that something is going on here, that the servant is coming and God is about to roll up his sleeves and go to work to do something. He's gonna go to work himself to purify the nations. We can continue in verse two. Two and three. He says, my servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. One of the most amazing things... and. you know, th- this is one of those famous uh, verses that we use to, I mean, th- this, this this passage is projecting to, to the person of Jesus Christ. And what's one of the most amazing things that I, I think about Jesus is we read it even in Philippians 2. It's this idea that God did not count himself equal or Jesus did not count, count himself equal to God, but he came to earth to suffer, to be a servant, to die on his creation's behalf, and what's so amazing when I think about Jesus, when I think about this passage about how he he grew up before us like a young plant in a root of a dry ground, he had no form of majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. What's so amazing about that? It's so counter to how we view uh, the world today. We have so many rock star pastors, or I don't know if you guys followed the the Instagram account Preachers and Sneakers. Um, it is it is it's it's sad it 's sadly kind of really humorous and funny, but it 's basically this this Instagram profile that that has you know takes pictures of these pastors that are wearing like uh, five thousand dollar Louis Vuitton jackets or like all these different things you know as they 're preaching but it 's so odd how counter to our society and how we are gravitated to fame, how we're gra- gravitated to what is attractive, we're gravitated to all these things, but that Jesus himself, the king of the world came and this passage even said, "No." when they, people looked at him, they're like, eh, he's just whatever. It's just wild to think about that even when we think about this king that the the Jews or the Israelites were were looking forward to, they were looking for this king that was going to save them from the surrounding uh, oppressive nations, this majestic, mighty king that was going to come with his armies of angels to destroy everyone and to reinstate his kingdom. And so they were expecting this majestic king to come through, roll up in his chariots, I guess, or whatever they had at that time, roll up and just be like, this is my territory. Get away, you know, whatever it was. But instead, he came as a servant, the exact opposite. He came, he was not flashy. He was human. You ever think about that? That the God of the universe created all things. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He's outside of anything that is in our comprehension that he literally made each of us and he became one of his creation as an infant. We have some new babies born here in the church recently, last, this last month. You ever think about that, that the king of the universe, think of all the different ways he could have come to earth, <laughs> but he came as an infant being birthed. <laughs> and had to be, subject himself to Joseph and Mary taking care of him. You know how babies are so helpless? The king of the universe was a helpless little baby. It's what we get to celebrate and think about in December. It's just wild. He had no form, majesty, or beauty. He just was not an attractive guy. He was just normal. He was, worked a blue-collar job. In a town, Nazareth. I think later I I forget where it is, but they talk about this idea of who, what good can come from Nazareth? He even came from a town where people were like, "Ew, like I wouldn't go there." Passage continues, and it says that not only was he normal, but he was despised. That when people looked at him, they hated him. He was rejected. That he was a man of sorrows and grief completely counter to what they were thinking about who a savior would be. Next chunk of verses, verse four says, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. I love how the NLT translates this. It's this idea that when, when we saw Jesus and we saw this, this, the, this servant that is it's forecasting to her and we see Jesus, all this wrong that's happened to him, it must have been because he did something wrong. Why in the world would he suffer such humiliation, such beating? Why in the world would he literally die a criminal's death on a cross if he hadn't done anything wrong? And so the assumption that, that, that God is saying here in Isaiah 53, written 700, 800 years before Jesus, is saying that which shouldn't, is surely this punishment is for his own sins and his own imperfections. He had to have done something to deserve this severity of death. In verse 5, though, it says no, but he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse five, this is the exact opposite of him doing something wrong. God is saying that this servant, this suffering servant, this Messiah, this majestic person that is going to come, that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, came not to be punished for his own sins, For his own transgressions, his iniquities is also uh, translated as kind of a, um, a perversion of God's law. He didn't come because he perverted God's law and the way he acted, but he came and he suffered punishment for our sin, for what we have done wrong. It says, uh, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What's so crazy about this, and what's so crazy as we think and we reflect upon the Easter season, as we reflect upon Good Friday even, is this idea that he didn't just suffer for our sins, but he suffered and he suffered punishment so that we, his creation, those who believe in Jesus, would have peace. Peace. This peace is kind of, it's this image of the lion laying down with the lamb. It's this image of, uh, you know, I don't know if you go to the zoo, but they have this, this exhibit where they have like a cheetah and a dog that are friends. <laughs> you know? um, but it's like that, like where this fierce predator animal can hang out with this like prey animal and they could be at peace with one another. The image is that, that our peace our sins, our, our, the, the, our, the things that we deserve punishment for are wiped away, forgiven, that we would be at peace with God. This is the great paradox, that he suffered and he was punished so that we would be at peace with God. Verse six says, and we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. One of the questions that I like to ask people in general is what do you think is wrong with the world? Like, if, in your mind, what do you think is the core root of what's wrong in the world? Because we see the wrong in the world. Like, on a macro scale, I mean, we're seeing, yeah, all of the conflicts. We're seeing, um, yeah, I mean, we're seeing even, like, in what, what happens when two super famous and rich people uh, are living in sin and then one assaults the other. Like, we're seeing that on live TV at the Oscars, right? But even on like a, a, a micro scale, we all know our own sin. And s- another way of even talking about sin, it's, it's this idea of selfishness that we prefer and we choose self over others. Now there's, like I said, dramatic displays of this around the world on a macro scale, but on a micro scale, it's the small decisions that we make. I am incredibly selfish, <laughs> That when left up to myself, I'm always going to choose my own comfort over the comfort of the people around me. Now, I don't want to, and I'm really trying not to, but it's our human nature to always preserve self over the others. And the amazingness about the gospel story is that for our selfishness, the greatest act of selflessness paid that price, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He did not say, hey, I'm God, what are you doing? He did not say, hey, I've actually lived a perfect life. I don't deserve this. He willingly and knowingly went to the cross for the joy set before him. He endured the cross on our behalf. Verse eight, it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. One of the things that this talks about is this idea that um, they thought he was dead but he wasn't. So we get to celebrate on Easter in two weeks. It's this idea that uh, Jesus was dead, dead, (laughs) like he was gone. And this passage even forecasts that and tells that. I think it's important because we have different religions or different thoughts or philosophies that would say that he didn't Actually, die. So one of the things core tenets of Islam is that they believe in Jesus, that he was a significant uh, prophet. But this idea that when he was on the cross, they actually replaced him—that God actually replaced him with someone else—that that that he couldn't actually kill Jesus. That Jesus—he killed someone else that looked like Jesus instead of actually Jesus. But this is forecasting and saying, and what we believe in the Bible and what we're gonna be celebrating in two weeks is that Jesus was dead. He was dead. He was buried. It was him. He went to the cross. I just think what's so crazy is that if he would have been saved, it would have been God had mercy for Jesus but the implication would be that all mankind would perish. Rather, in Jesus' death, God demonstrates even greater mercy. Is that in Jesus dying, God just didn't have mercy on Jesus. He had mercy on all of his creation. That in his death and resurrection, he's giving a way of salvation for all people that have ever lived. As we continue verse 10. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. I think this is uh, just really interesting because a lot of times it's easy to blame other people for, for Jesus dying. The Roman government did it. They put him on the cross. Pilate wasn't strong enough to say, hey, he's I, you know, I'm not going to kill him. A lot of times people blame the Jewish elite at the time. They said the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish elite at the time, they were the ones who killed him. In some respects, it's true, but this is powerful, powerfully important when we consider that in verse 10, it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was the plan all along. That when we talk about seeing the gospel or seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, when we we see it, it just pops. We can never unsee it. We see the gospel and Jesus' redemption and grace from Genesis 1 throughout. It was the Lord's will from the moment that there was rebellion and sin in the world from Adam and Eve. It was his plan, and you see it unfold in the entirety of the Old Testament of this redemption plan to save humanity. And we see it here written 800 years before Jesus, forecasting what was going to happen. That the will of the Lord, it was to crush him, that he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This right here, we read that he was dead and this is forecasting that this servant of the Lord will be brought back to life. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We see that this forecasting of not just the suffering servant who's going to suffer, but the suffering servant who's gonna suffer, die, and then be raised again. The servant will be brought back to life. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. We just see this. It's another beautiful representation of the gospel. Out of the anguish of Jesus' soul he shall see and be satisfied. It, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's this idea that there's no regrets. He had no regrets. He knew what was going to happen. He asked God, please take this away because he knew how severe and how terrible it was going to be. He faithfully and obediently went to the cross and died for us. But he says that this suffering servant shall see and be satisfied, even in the midst of the anguish that he endured. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Make many to be accounted righteous. Through his death on a cross, many will be accounted righteous. Before Jesus, absolutely impossible for anyone to be counted righteous because of our selfishness and sin. But what Jesus did on the cross accounted many righteous because he bared their iniquities. Finally, verse 12 says, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I think this is one of those eerie ones when you think about prophecy and how it was fulfilled in Jesus. When he talks about, uh, because he was, he was numbered with the transgressors. You, you consider um, who was on either side of him with the crosses, right? Uh, it was him in the middle and then the criminals, the people that deserved to be killed and die a criminal death on either side of him. That he was numbered with the transgressors. He was just like any other criminal or person that he bore the sin of everyone. I think when you consider the impact of the cross, I mean, there's been books and books and books and books of books about about what occurred and the significance of what happened on the cross. And we're gonna get a chance to reflect on that more as we approach Good Friday and Easter. But literally, you think about the implications of what happened on the cross are that God in his mercy and grace saw that his creation was basically destroying itself. It was broken. There's pain everywhere. And so he had this solution to basically wrap his arms around all of creation and to heal it, to save it that on the cross, the act of the cross, and then his resurrection from the death, literally allowed every single sin, past, present, and future of every single human being that has ever lived to be completely wiped away with faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Like you think about every single evil. You think about Paul, when he was Saul, was imprisoning and murdering Christians. He encountered God, and his life was changed. And he wrote most of the New Testament. There's one of my good friends at church. Is this is this guy that he grew up here in San Diego? Was part of you know Mexican mafia cartels, all these things. Did really, 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 really bad things. In solitary confinement, in prison, God met him, changed his life, radically transformed him, and he is not even close to the person that he was. He has all the tattoos, everything, the history, the stories, but he is a living, walking representation that Jesus' death on a cross can heal and wipe away every single sin. There's, not, there's nobody who is unsavable that walks this earth. That is the power of the grace of God. No philosophy, no religion, no no God that I have ever read about can ever solve this problem of human sin, except for Jesus. If you guys ever uh, get a chance to go to Israel, I got to live there for two years when I graduated college and uh, it was awesome for a number of reasons. Uh, but one of my favorite places is the Garden of Gethsemane so it's it's the traditional place that they believe that the Garden of Gethsemane was and uh, we'll be reading it a lot in a couple weeks but in the Garden of Gethsemane that's the place where Jesus and his disciples went to pray um, the night before he was taken right and um, and it's just this powerful place because it's these like olive groves and some Plants and the, the Catholic church has built this amazing, probably one of my favorite churches in Israel, this beautiful church that when you walk inside, the whole idea of it is like the inside makes you feel like, it tries to, it tries to put you into the place of Jesus in the nighttime at the garden. So like the roof, it's all dark inside. The ceiling has like stars and on all and the walls, it's just like these beautiful paintings of trees and all these different things. And so one of my favorite places is to go there, to sit in there, and just to really just think about and reflect. And I invite you to do that even in this season, is to realize that Jesus was real. (laughs) I know we know that, but we take it for granted sometimes, that he was like a real human being that had real emotions and and suffered real things and was in that garden and he was praying and he had all what he was about to go through on his mind, weighing heavy on his heart, and he was thinking just, God, do I really have to do this? And I just imagine sitting there and I just imagine like what, you know, obviously God said no. <laughs> oh, well, yes, you have to go through this. Um, but what I imagine is as he did this, he had this fortitude and, and, and God the Father ministered in a, in a way that's such a mystery to God the Son And I really believe that the fully divine Jesus could see the faces of each of us as he considered what he was about to do. Because I don't know, other than true love, I don't know what would motivate a person to undergo what Jesus did. And so I, I, I sit there in that church and I just reflect on that. And I think about that the 2000 years later that he had me in mind when he thought about going to the cross that he had the, the, my end destination if without him doing that would have been an eternity separated from him. And he could not bear that to be. And so he went, he said, you know what? I gotta do this. He went and he endured savage beating. Like, I don't know if I, I I do boxing. And so like even to have someone punch me in the face, it doesn't feel good, right? He got punched in the face repeatedly. He got spit on. He got shamed. Uh, there's there's these bushes. If you go to Israel, there's like these, these fat thorns that grow on them. And these are the thorns that they had taken the branches and made this thorn crossed him that they just shoved on his head. I'm, probably not like nicely or grac- graciously. That they whipped him repeatedly. They put robes on his bloody back and they ripped that off. I, just enduring all that he went through that he could barely even hold. I mean, this, this beam that he was going to hold to be hung on was already heavy, but he was so weakened by no food, no water, and getting beaten that he couldn't even carry it that they had to have someone carry it for him. And that even to the point when he got to the cross, endured the cross, and when you think about enduring the cross, literally fat nails being driven through your wrists and in your feet hung on a tree, and the whole idea behind that is it it wasn't gonna be like literally like the elements necessarily or, or, or the piercing of your wrist that was gonna kill you, it was you were going to suffocate once you're down like this, literally no, you could not breathe. And so you had to, with your feet, with the nail through your feet, push yourself up of the nail that's going through your feet, attached to the cross, push yourself up to breathe, and then come back down. And then when you couldn't breathe again, you had to push yourself back up and breathe and come back down. It was a brutal form of torture. And that is what he endured for you. And that is what he endured for me. And when you consider the, the length in which he went to die for you and for me, not out of obligation, but out of sincere and true selfless love. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the person. This is the servant that Isaiah is forecasting to. seven 800 years before Jesus. This is the one that he's forecasting to. The, the servant that is going to come and suffer, but ultimately be exalted among the nations. That he will come back as the triumphant king and he has already established his kingdom. But it's not a kingdom that we all thought. It's a kingdom of service. It's a kingdom of true self-sacrificing love. It is a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of mercy. This is the kingdom that he is inviting us into. So as we enter into this season or continue in this season, let's take it as an opportunity to reflect on this suffering servant that Isaiah so long ago was forecasting to, and that we see in the New Testament the ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ who is alive today and wants to be in a relationship with you. And he wants to be in a relationship with me. It is the greatest news in the history of mankind. (laughs) So I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us. As we wrap up, God, we just thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your mercy and we thank you for your word. God, ultimately, we just thank you for the ultimate sacrifice. We thank you that you, you loved us individually and collectively so much to endure what you endured, to do what needed to be done in order to save us from an eternity separated from you, that you wanted us to be in relationship with you. You want us to experience the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and kindness and self-control that come through a relationship with you. You wanted us to experience what it looks like to be true adopted sons and daughters into your family. Even though we don't deserve it, you joyfully want us to be in family with you. And that you've given us an opportunity to be in your kingdom here, but also for eternity, life with you, where there's no more suffering, no more pain, nothing that we can just be in community and worship you forever. And Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. And may we be transformed by your word. For all these things your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at GraceCitySD.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.